don't seem real. I ain't gonna never breathe again, ever. How he's dead. And the other one, too. All on account of pulling the trigger. It's a hell of a thing, killing a man. You take away all he's got, and all he's ever gonna have. Yeah. Well, I guess they had it coming. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of No Happy Endings. Our film this week is 1992's Unforgiven, directed and starring Clint Eastwood, Gene Hackman, Morgan Freeman, Richard Harris. This is just a shit kicker of a good movie and it's really throwing the whole western genre upside down deconstructing it what made me think of this movie was Wright Thompson's article about Michael Jordan turning 50 and that he seems to watch this film over and over and over again because of a profound self-identification with Clint Eastwood's character the gunslinger but the gunslinger at the end of his life trying to put behind his past and um, move into the last stage of his life and made me think about Roy Jones Jr. and Mike Tyson and not just them trying to reach back to their past, but, um, you know, fans. Fans turning it into something that does better pay-per-view numbers than younger, better, athletic kids of today. We, we just want to connect to something that is from this other place. And um, it's just a remarkable film. So I hope you enjoy Stephen Benedict and I discussing Unforgiven on this week's podcast. Stephen, I think it would be fair to say, embarking on 1992's Unforgiven, that it's a hell of a thing to record a podcast. <laughs> You take it well, we've got it. No, it's ever going to happen. <laughs> you say everything you have to say until there's nothing left to be said, until there's just the unsaid. I was trying to come up with a version, uh, a spin of that wonderful line. It's a hell of a thing to kill a man. You take away everything he's got, everything he's ever going to have. What a, what a line among many. Uh, 1992's Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood, going into this film, said, despite all the nominations for this film, that he was never going to win one. First, because I'm not Jewish. Secondly, I make too much money. And thirdly, and most importantly, because I don't give a fuck. Despite the rampant Mel Gibson-like anti-Semitism, uh, it won four, including Best Director and Best Picture. Uh, I was blown away by this film, despite that statement <laughs> by Eastwood. Uh, what did you make of Unforgiven? Um, I was really fortunate. This was back in my college days, and this was the very, very first assignment that I was ever given to write a review of a movie. Mm -hmm. And um, I can't say with I can say with all honesty, I utterly failed in being able to analyze it properly. I'm just simply too young. Okay, uh, I was I was barely 22, thinking that I knew everything there was to, to know about movies. But I went in, and I was absolutely bewitched by the film in many, many different ways. It's a strange word to use, verb to use. 
adjective to use in in relation to Unforgiven, but I was it was spellbinding. The level of excellence in the film, um, the thematic concerns, the construction of the scenes, the character development. Because you know, I read years later when I did a podcast on it that when Clint was given the screenplay, firstly he was intrigued because he couldn't figure out who the hero was. Hmm. And when I was watching the film. I too felt that, but I said to myself, well, you know, Clint's the hero, surely, but he's not the hero. Where is the hero in this story? They're all phenomenally flawed, damaged, psychotically deranged characters, with the exception, I think, of Morgan Freeman. He's the one character who seems to have the most ballast of the lot. But look what happened. Look the way he is completely mistreated. Um, uh, and to revisit it again, it's an absolute delight to see the level of artistry on display from the cinematography to the score, part of which was the original theme was composed by Clint Eastwood himself. Clint Eastwood has um, a team of uh, collaborators who work around him a lot of the time. Jack N. Green, the cinematographer, Lenny Niehaus in the score, Joel Cox is the editor. And I, I think Joel Cox won for best editing that year. Uh, I think if there was, um, maybe I'm being a little bit prejudiced here, but the same year, The Crying Game, the Irish movie, The Crying Game was up for the Academy Awards and that won Best Original Screenplay. I think in any other year, David Webb Peoples' screenplay for Unforgiven would have won. I think this is really, really rich, laden with phenomenal irony and bitter, bitter irony. When people try to do virtuous things, when bad people try to do virtuous things, it gets even worse. Uh, you know, and the example that I gave, the easiest one, is when uh, Delilah, the, the sex worker who's caught up at the beginning of the film, um, when uh, it is when, when the, her, her, fellow, well, her fellow sex workers, the prostitutes, gather all their money to hire mercenaries to come in and kill these guys. Um, when the, the cowboys, when the mercenaries come in from out of town, they, they, they're offered freebies in advance. And Delilah, who is still very, very, very heavily scarred, find, goes up to meet Clint Eastwood's character, Willie Money, who, when he's out of town and in, the, in the snow. And uh, he, this is after he's been beaten up by Gene Hackman's character, uh, Little Bill, in the, in, the, in the pub, in the bar, sorry, in the saloon. And um, she offers herself to Clint and he says, um, no, on account of my being married. But you're a beautiful woman, and if I was to want a, a free one, I'd want it with you, I guess, more than the mother, too. Just that I, I can't on account of my wife. And we know that he's trying to get himself off the hook because he won't have sex with her but we also know that he's trying to turn the corner because he's honoring the memory of his, of his dead wife and she had helped him get back on the path and then later when delilah is talking to her uh, to her comrades she says no no you know on she starts talking about clint eastwood's wife and she goes no he's dead she's dead and the heartbreak on her face is just brilliant and yeah. the ability to to mine out these tiny little moments of hurt and bruising and scarring on all the characters, uh, for me, amounts to one of the greatest American screenplays written. This is easily within the top hundred. I, I to totally agree. I mean, just the concept. I mean, this movie was dedicated to Sergio Leone and Don Siegel. Um, Leone, I think most listeners will will we're going to do <laughs> right after this, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, Don Siegel was the director of, of many 
well-watched and some critically acclaimed films, but including Dirty Harry. So these were really the mentors for Clint. But fascinating to delve into the revisionist Western genre here. As you say, who do you root for here? Who are the heroes? Um, Clint is not defending the honor of the whorehouse and the scarred up woman who's been brutalized, mutilated, because she giggled at the size of the penis of a man she was sleeping with. Um, But this is not a God-fearing innocent woman who's been taken advantage of, or girl who's been taken advantage of. Um, That's intriguing. Clint has a background that is grotesquely violent. Mm -hmm. Um, Gene Hackman actually modeled his role at Clint's suggestion on Daryl Gates, the police chief of Los Angeles. Daryl Gates. Oh, wow. That's that's a revelation. So we're talking about Gates at the time, right? I, I, th- I think Rodney King was 92 or 91, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it's a fascinating choice. I certainly didn't know that the first time I saw this film, but going into the, the watching of it again last night, boy, you can see just his face, how similar it is to Gates and many of those terrifying press interviews that Gates would give essentially dismissing any kind of concern or compunction for African-American victims of police brutality. Uh, you know, I, I would encourage listeners to go to uh, OJ Made in America to look at the history of race in America yeah. and specifically Los Angeles um, that led up to the OJ Simpson trial. But um, no, as a genre, this was really interesting about I guess, in a sense, that instead of heroes, you have the people who emerge, who survive, that get to tell the story. And you even have a writer in here. You have a writer who's being confronted with the mythology-making versus the reality of what he actually witnesses with this incredible showdown between Clint and a whole room of armed people in the saloon at the end. Uh, There's just so much to work with here and... We're also talking right after this weekend where you had a, a kind of version of this in, in boxing where there was Mike Tyson and Roy Jones with a combined <laughs> age of 105. And in a way, it, it felt similar to wanting to see Clint Eastwood and Gene Hackman and Richard Harris yeah. s- saddle up and, and get back out into the West. And still, we want to see the old gunslingers that are famous rather than anybody young who would doubtlessly surpass them. There was, there was real value to me with this film just at the outset of just Clint trying to literally get onto his horse yeah. and repeatedly falling off. It was, In um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, just uh, really interesting choices against type yeah. of, of who he had been as this kind of face, the nameless face of yeah. the West to what it is here, as you say, is just one of the darkest films that I've seen in a long time. Yeah, You're, to, to pick up on one or two of the things you said, because this is the attachment to the film, you know, in, in speaking for the last few minutes, you've covered a multitude. <laughs> and, but, but there's, you know, and the, the, the beneath that multitude, there's so many different layers. I mean, you mentioned um, Daryl Gates and Gene Hackman's performance of him. Uh, using him as the basis for his character, Little Bill. And you're talking about the history of race. 
And but look what little Bill does to Ned Logan, played by um, Morgan Freeman. And interestingly, the way that the the um, address Morgan Freeman's character, they never once refer to his ethnicity. No, it's almost as if it's a given. Right. Huh. It's just implicit. We're supposed to absorb that information and we sort of invent the language that they would be using. But actually, they don't use it because we can we can almost hear it in advance. Um, but also, you're you're alluding to um, W. W. Beauchamp, the the, the quote journalist who's covering um, English Bob, uh, who's called who's calling him the du who calls himself the Duke of Death, and then Gene ha Gene Hackman's character who constantly is there to deflate and call him the Duck of Death, and um, that is that is a brilliant thing. But it also, <clears throat> I think, it tells something something quite really interesting at the end of the film is when, as you said, Clint Eastwood, William Money has the showdown with a, a whole gallery uh, of gunmen in the saloon and he shoots them all very, very quickly and then he goes to, he, he, he murders uh, little Bill and then Beauchamp says, he, he starts to quickly interview him and right. this is the second time, the second time that Beauchamp, the recorder of history, suddenly quickly switches allegiances. And that is, I think, a commentary on mythology. It'll attach itself to whatever power there is. Uh, you can simply say maybe the power sucks in the, the, the mythology to reflect itself. But I think what what um, what uh, David People's screenplay here is doing is is saying that the mythology, the myth makers, will attach themselves to whatever power there is in order to not only to tell the story, but for, for simple case of survival, it's almost like the court jester who will mock everybody in the court and gently make a joke at the king's expense. But if the, the jester knows that they're in trouble, they will start mocking other people in order to, to ensure their own survival, which is what Beauchamp does. You know, I think that the it would have been very, very easy for them, for uh, web peoples just to leave it, that this was the, Beauchamp was the guy who's recording the history and once little Bill Daggett corrects him, that's his function. But he flips it over again. So suddenly he he aligns himself with uh, William Money, as if to say, you're the most powerful guy in the room. I will follow you to tell your story. But the amazing thing about Money's character is he, to quote Clint in his Oscar campaign, I don't give a fuck. Right, right. <laughs> Well, no, that's a fabulous point. I mean, Saul Rubinek, who I think that same year was in True Romance, giving one of the biggest overacting performances in the history of film. <laughs> Apparently he based his character on uh, Joel Silver. And, and also, Brent, you know, one other thing to remind ourselves is that, you know, the movie, as you said, came out in 92. Clint Eastwood at the time, this was considered to be his swan song. You know, this was the last time. He was only 62. I yeah. Just now in his 90s, he's made so many very, very good films since. Um, but what I love about the movie and what makes it really one of the great American pictures is it starts off in a really, really dark place. Um, you know, Delilah and uh, the other girls are assaulted by these, these uh, guys looking for sex. And there's no justice meted out to them. You know, um, Strawberry Alice turns to Bill and she says, a whooping is all they get after all that, what they've done. And he says, I think he says, haven't you seen enough blood for one night or something? And he, he says, go off and buy some horses. Is a reflection of the way women would have been treated back then. Cattle. And in actual fact, Strawberry Alice says, 
they got these guys may treat us like horses, but we're not horses. They literally brand them. And it starts off in this incredibly dark place and it gets darker. The movie goes over the hill, not to the sunset, into the darkness of the night and goes beyond that darkness. And it is so true to itself. I remember when I when, when the movie finished and when I saw it for the first time in 1992, I was completely stunned um, by its trajectory. I mean, I knew enough to know, even as a 22-year-old 20, budding, aspiring film critic, I'm happy to say a career I never properly pursued. But um, it, it just was so forthright and rigid in its, in, in its, um, in its linearity. It got started dark and got darker and kept on getting darker. And it wasn't actually a real downer of a movie and it wasn't depressing. It was revelatory, almost in a biblical sense. And um, there's elements of beauty within the film that sort of take, not take away, not take away, but dilute the sheer ugliness of the landscape. It's beautifully photographed and the score is magnificent, which temper the, the real uh, brutality of the subject matter. That's interesting, because you're right. I think part of the juxtaposition that makes me feel like I'm somewhere new with it is it's like a pastoral massacre. Right, right. Because the beauty of, the, of you know, where Clint lives with his two kids, you know, and again, he's falling over all the time with horses or his, his swine that he's looking after, with um, you know his inability to recapture the person he was with being a bad shot as he's doing target practice, needs some more money to look after this family, and then just delves into this horrific situation. I mean, the mutilation of this prostitute with a knife is really hard to watch. I mean, for somebody who's so closely associated with characters like Dirty Harry and... Uh, there are aspects of this film that looks like it's like a second, a pro second amendment film, <laughs> you know, that the town suddenly becomes, you're not allowed to bring a weapon in. And we see various people bringing weapons in and uh, Gene Hackman's character, little bill was himself a former gunslinger. So he's trying to become something different as is Clint Eastwood. Uh, Richard Harris's character is this, <laughs> the duck of death. Um, is himself a great shot, which we see when he's on the train shooting pheasants. Well, he's actually, yeah, but he's been hired by the railroad to shoot, quote, Chinamen. Yeah. So the, the racism, you know, the bigotry is on display very, very clearly in the film. And this is one of the things I love about the film is that it blows open the whole mythology right. of the Western being the, the, the formation myth of America, where clearly good and evil was able to be demarcated and never the twain shall meet. And the movie, which actually I'm doing the research, um, David Webb Peoples of all movies was inspired to write Unforgiven <clears throat> when he came out of seeing Taxi Driver. Huh. And he was amazed by Taxi Driver because he said, this is the first time I've ever seen a movie that dealt with violence in a very mature adult way. You know, which is interesting because, you know, The Godfather, I thought, was pretty, pretty mature in its delivery. But he was talking about the really, really unseemly aspect of it and the psychosis of the character, you know, Travis meeting out this violence. And, you know, let's not kid ourselves. This was 1976. This is the bicentenary of the foundation of the, the, the independence of America, you know, and uh, this is the movie that he writes. 
and he's he's looking back into the past, the foundation myth of America, and he levels it in a way that very, very few other revisionist Westerns have been able to do. And because there were so many things on his side, you know, Clint Eastwood being one of them. I mean, I know that Don Siegel had directed in 1975 a movie called The Shootist, starring John Wayne, and he's a, an aging, dying gunslinger. And the movie, The Shootist, ends off really, really in an interesting place because what he does is he, he shows a compilation of John Wayne in his youth as a gunslinger. Mm. So it's like a recapitulation of it. But Clint had so many things in his favor going into the picture. Being, you know, the, the protege of Don Siegel and Sergio Leone, having played Dirty Harry, having played The Man With No Name, having played Outlaw Josie Wales, having directed and starred in Pale Rider. He had this back catalog that everybody's aware of. And we had this expectation going in and he chiseled away at it. It's almost like he was disfiguring his own legacy. Mm. But because he was disfiguring it himself, he was able to redefine it. You know, if someone else had gone in and made a parody of Clint Eastwood, then his legacy perhaps would have been very, very damaged. But because Clint had the ability or was afforded the opportunity to revisit his own iconography, he was able to forge a new one for himself to say, no, I don't agree with um, the way of the gun, you know, um, uh, there is an element, there is an examination of gun control in the film, and um, he's trying to constantly play down and, and move away from the former life of killing and, and drunken behaviour that he did. And miraculously, his his late wife was able to correct him for a short while, but the demon came back because you know he's the angel of death. Forget about the Duke of Death. This William Money's character is the angel of death. He's, he's beyond an avenging angel. He's an exterminating angel. He's just going to wipe out everybody. At the end of the movie, he says, All right, I'm coming out. Any man I see out there, I'm going to kill him. Any some bitch takes a shot at me, not only going to kill him, I'm going to kill his wife, all his friends, burn his damn house down. He's probably, he's, pos he's promising the apocalypse. <laughs> it's yeah. so dark. Yeah, I'll shoot you. I'll shoot your wife. I'll burn your house down. Yeah, it sounds like Kaiser Sose for a minute there. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really good. I think we talked to Macquarie. Did he actually, was he inspired by that piece at the end? Yeah. Well, it's interesting what you say about the taxi driver, because I think you're right. The resolution of the story at the end with, with Clint just mowing down a saloon is very much like, like Travis Bickle going into that old tenement and just blowing away Harvey Keitel and anybody that tries to stop him, ostensibly uh, to save Jodie Foster's character in a very The Searchers type yeah. way. Um, but, but I also just think that what the layer that adds to all of this is just that Saul Rubinek Bouchamp, because as the people are getting mowed down, he seems almost orgasmic. You, you get a moment of the camera slowly focusing yes, yeah. on him, drawing closer to him to watch his delight. In, and, yeah. and you're quite aware of that's our delight too. That's America's delight at this yeah. history. And already the controlling of what actually happened into this elevation, into yeah. mythology, this apotheosis, this disturbing apotheosis. Um, that just adds a layer of almost like David Lynch, where there's so many of the wonderful moments where it's never quite clear whose perspective we're meant to um, 
empathize with. And, and I mean, we can't be empathizing very much with Clint Eastwood in this story or anybody else. I mean, in that, in that respect, the revisionist Western, I think, works very effectively is I'm just not sure who, who is me in the story. Who would I be in this story? Except, I guess, with people that have been criminals in the past trying to revisit who they were and finding out they just aren't that person anymore. As you yeah. see with Morgan Freeman's character, Ned, who seems the most decent, as you yeah. said. But when the moment arrives, the moment of truth to pull the trigger for what they've set out to do, he's unable to do it and just wants to go back home to his wife. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that the way, as we said, we alluded to the way he's, he's mistreated to the, to the point that they kill him. I mean, they, they scourge him to death. They, they whip him to death. They, they, and um, Bill administers that, de- that killing. And he's the sheriff who is constructing his own home. But he cannot put a straight line of carpentry in it because it's leaking. I mean, that's a, it's a nice, very yeah. obvious, also very, very workable metaphor, which I think was really, really good. Um, but also, you know, we've discussed several times in the past about the movies that we've, we've been addressing. Is the story told from the right point of view? You know, yeah. who, what other angle could be told? And let's just pretend that we decide to tell it from, from Rubinek's point of view, from Beauchamp. And that would have, you know, would be very, very illuminating. But I think the type of story that he would write, let's just pretend that, you know, we're, we're David Webb Peoples and we're writing the story from Beauchamp's point of view. The story then would have been about how he somehow managed to re-mythologize and re-romanticize the psychotic brutality that Clint Eastwood's character, William Money, had meted out on everybody in the saloon. And it would have framed it within the case of um, he, he was protecting the memory of his wife. And this is a woman called Delilah. And he, he was driven by the memory of his wife to, to shoot down the men who did. They would have completely distorted, which is what mythology does. Right? right. But I think, you know, by clearly telling the story across three or four different vantage points, um, people avoided the problem of elevating and romanticizing what Clint did, what, what money's what money does in the movie. What I mean, one other thing about Bouchamp's character that I also think is very intriguing is cinema has gotten a lot of mileage out of venerating journalists and right. venerating people who document history. And I'm not, I mean, in a time where journalism has never been under more assault in the United States, I'm not trying to pile on, but certainly... I think it is fair to present the ambulance chasing aspect of journalism that we we as a breed are delighted by anything that makes a great story. And often tragedy, crime, brutality is what people most want to read. So as much as these people are going out there to tell the stories of the unheard, um, Seeing that voyeuristic delight on Rubinick's face as people are murdered, like these people didn't do anything wrong. This is not justifiable homicide. This guy is coming in there with a shotgun and blowing away everybody in sight. Um, that to me was a very interesting commentary on, on this profession that I think we don't see enough of. It's, it's not all the president's men where it's just totally pure – 
noble. This was much more the sort of Janet Malcolm, uh, you know, <laughs> Faustian bargain that we all have yeah. in, in getting involved in telling a victim's story and appropriating their story and wanting to tell the story, wanting to be the messenger, controlling history. Um, I thought in very e economical ways, uh, this was one of the most fascinating depictions of a writer that I've seen, even though it's it's almost a cameo. Yeah, and, it, and because by leaving it as a cameo, I think um, Peoples was able then to leave so much more space for us to invest the meaning of the character. For me, the, the first time I saw it, I was immediately reminded of the John Ford Western from 1962, um, The Man Liberty Valance, which contains one of the greatest lines in, in, the, in the genre, where... Um, it says, this is the West, sir, uh, when you, the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Huh. And, you know, that's, that was a great revelation. That was a great commentary in 1962 on the initial first wave, really, of reviving the Western. But people's screenplay brings it further, as you said, because it's, it's it, when Ford's delivered that, when that line is delivered in Ford's picture, it is to romanticize, it's to justify and the mythologizing, but Peoples just takes it apart. You know, he says, you know, uh, journalists who would have been helping found the myth of America, writers and novelists, you know, they just gravitate towards or corrupt, they gravitate towards power or they, they corrupt the truth of it. And by corrupting the truth, they lionize really, really dangerous people. I mean, we'll be talking about it, I'm sure, in, in, in the not too distant future. And um, Jesse James, you know, who was a man who was deeply, deeply scarred by his experiences in the, in the American Civil War. Clearly, to me, my reading of it, he was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. Um, and he was turned into this mythological hero because he starts robbing the railroad. You know, um, I don't know the equivalent today. Well, in the 30s, it was robbing banks. You know, John Dillinger and Bonnie and Clyde. What would it be today? A, um, a hacker? into WikiLeaks or for WikiLeaks or would it be Edward Snowden, you know? Um, but I think that's that's one of the beautiful layers in, in Unforgiven um, is that it was, when I watched it recently, that was the thing that, strung, that sprung out from at, at me the most was the way the mythology is overturned. And then we, are, we were, were encouraged to examine the person who's inventing the mythology. You know, and also, you know, the wonderful thing about the Schofield kid, the young guy who's claim, claiming to be a killer, a, ser a multiple killer, um, who's short-sighted. So literally, he simply cannot see the consequences of what he's doing. It's it's a little bit obvious, but it works really, really well, you know? Yeah. No, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, the... The, the exploration and meditation on violence, I find, is very nuanced in the film. I mean, this was the first Western that I ever saw at 13. I was always very averse to the genre. Okay. I, thought it, I thought it was all advocacy of this mythology, of this dark time. And, you know, you, you bring up Jesse James, but, I mean, Jesse James was a cold-blooded killer, a complete criminal um, robbing these banks. There, I mean, this idea that it was on behalf of the Southern Confederacy and that the Civil War never ended for him, bu bullshit. I mean, yeah. but, but the mythologizing of him 
And let's remember, this might be the first modern celebrity in the world. It's it's probably him or or Oscar Wilde, and oh, yes, yeah, yeah, and and Jesse James at the time of his death was a face that even his assassin was a more known Robert Ford was a more known face than the president of the United States to Americans by a wide margin. Yes. So and and you know and the Saul Rubinick, the Bouchamps of the world were the ones propagating this mythology that yeah. was transcending legitimate heroism or any kind of virtue becoming known. America was moving in a very different direction of mythologizing the West to, to the point where watching this film, I was reminded of that lovely documentary, Room 237, where one of the subjects, I think it was Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey, not Hitchcock, but it's something like that. I read his book, um, The Wolf at the Door, said that he saw a poster for The Shining and it said, the horror that spread from, from coast to coast, from Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon. And he said, well, did The Shining like spread the horror from coast to coast? Because the only <laughs> horror I know that occurred in America from coast to coast was essentially the wiping out and genocide yeah. of the Native Americans. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the era we're talking about here. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, these films played a huge role in romanticizing this era where, you know, it's the savages who are on the one side and the virtuous white people on the other. And this sure debunks a lot of that mythology. And, and I really liked just the turns it took um, with almost all of the characters. All of the characters take a turn that's unexpected. As you say, the, the nearsighted young kid, Schofield kid, yeah. kills a man who's in a toilet, defecating, mm -hmm. and... All of his romantic notions about what it would be like to be a killer like William Bunny, like, like sorry, William Bunny, um, yeah. are gone. They evaporate, yeah. and he wants to leave it all behind. Ned, Morgan Freeman character, same thing, just knows he's yeah. not out for it anymore. And Clint Eastwood kind of acquiesces into the violence in a way that is enormously ambivalent. And... Yes. Um, you know, he's seen the light with what this wife represented. Interesting kind of maybe unintentionally comedic moment was when you see the grave for his wife, Claudia. You see that she died at the age of 28. Well, Clint is 62. <laughs> so you're thinking, as he's got these kids that are there um, yeah. who are, what, nine and seven years old, maybe 11 and nine years old. What, yeah. what did he meet her when he was 50 and she was 18 or something? And isn't that the truth, though? You know, that would have been uh, so indicative of the times. Uh, I'm not excusing it at all. I'm just simply saying that that's historically that would be quite common, I'm sure. And also what I love about it is um, there's no explanation when, you know, years later, when um, uh, Claudia's mother comes to visit the grave, she says, there's nothing on the gravestone to explain to her why her daughter ended up with William Money. And the movie doesn't bother to try to pursue that explanation either, which I think is brilliant, which is part of mythologizing. It just sort of leaves it as a mystery. And then money disappears with his kids, rumored off to have moved off to San Francisco. I love this prospering in dry goods. Even the terminology is really, really fantastic. You know, it, it, Beauchamp could have written that line, you know, uh -huh. the, the way it was done. But also, you know, 
when what I really, really loved about the movie to, to watch this time, it was the, the pacing of it was so mature. It mm. wasn't in a hurry at all. And sometimes there's scenes that turn over once and then turn over twice. And you're completely uh, surprised by it. Because, you know, some of the, by which I mean, some of the scenes go on for six or seven, eight minutes. Most scenes today, or even back in the early 90s, would have been three minutes at the max, in and out, get your point done and move on. But the, the scene for me, there's two scenes in particular that really, really stunned me. is when we're, we first see Richard Harris in the barber getting getting shaved and uh, having shaved. And he walks out onto the, um, uh, onto the main street and all of a sudden he's surrounded by... Uh, Bill Daggett and all his all his henchmen, and they have a they have a sort of a very very sparky conversation, full of tension. Give up your gun, uh, English Bob. And Bob says, "I don't have a gun." He comes over and he disarms him, and you think that's going to be the end of the scene. And suddenly, there's an eruption of violence where um, Bill Daggett starts beating him and kicking him in the head and beating him down to the earth. Most movies would have just ended the scene when he takes up his gun. But no, this, the sadism of Bill starts to come out. And you can see, as you were, as you were saying, the way Beauchamp is actually gets a little bit of an orgasmic turn on when he sees um, William Money shooting everyone down. The same thing happens with Bill. You know, he's, you can see that he's getting real satisfaction out of this. And the second scene that I think is absolutely spectacular is when the Schofield kid and William Money um, have 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 murdered the the the, um, the the other cowboys. They've got them. They've done the deed, and they're waiting out by the tree, way out outside of Whiskey, Wyoming. And you can you can see one of the girls. Uh, I can't remember her name, but she's on the horse coming out to give them their money. And the 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 scene cuts to her three or four times as she approaches, and each time it cuts to her and cuts back to Schofield Kid and Clint. They've moved on the conversation. The conversation's turned over, and we all think it's just about um, they're they're waiting for the money, right? And then the Schofield kid then makes the confession, and Clint delivers his one of the greatest lines in the history of the Western genre. It's a hell of a thing to kill a man, as he said at the beginning. It's a beautifully weighted line, mm. and the way he pauses to deliver the kicker is fantastic. And you think that's the end of the scene, but when she arrives to give him the news about little Bill, sorry about um, Ned. And then all of a sudden, Clint starts drinking again. And he's all, you know, the way he frames it and the way he shoots it, he actually shoots it in slow motion. If you watch it very carefully, he raised the, the whiskey to his lips. And you can actually, you notice it's slow motion because the, the, the water's flowing the way it shouldn't. And that is the moment when the demons are returning, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that it is, 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 that demonology is William Money's true nature. I think when he was in contact with Claudia, she was able to take him away from the darkness. But when she died, he was always, it's almost Greek, not Greek tragedy, but it's sort of Greek destiny that his character, his true nature will turn again, you know? Um, but uh, what I love about it is the, the fact that Clint's, Clint called that piece of music, the theme music of the movie, he called it Claudia, which in actual fact, you get the impression that it, it gives the indication that his wife is calling to him all the time and the beauty of the music and the fact that it, he's telling them that the, the fact that the music is coming from her point of view as i said to you helps lessen or not dilute but at least make more palatable the ugliness and the barbarity that's portrayed on screen as i said it's a beautiful film to watch and the way it's framed the pacing of it and the music helps it more, makes it more palatable. If another lesser talented director had come in, it would have been just brutality from wall to wall. And I think the brutality in no way is glorifying it. No. I, you know, you feel like that scene, 
and it's a fabulous juxtaposition because it's a very disturbing one when Gene Hackman is kicking Richard Harris, an older guy with very white hair, kicking him in the head. I think he delivers a speech. I'm not going to get it verbatim, but it's, you, you think I'm kicking you, but I'm not kicking you. I'm talking to you. And so on the one hand, you're kind of laughing at this wonderful moment and speech that Hackman is delivering. And he's delivering it wonderfully. It's, I mean, great lines, but the delivering of it is so unexpected and, yeah. and comedic. Uh, and at the same time, the violence he's delivering very much looks like any news broadcast I've seen of an old person being attacked or right. beat or beaten. And the, I mean, the, almost the whole thing of just, you know, gut shots that people have that kills them off slowly. There's a feeling of violence and you get this in some really well done films where it's like, I haven't seen somebody shot until I've seen this depiction of it, as opposed to, uh, you know, back to the revisionist Western as a theme where it doesn't mean anything. It's just, just, just lives are completely expendable. It's just gamified where it's yeah. essentially Grand Theft Auto or something. And there's no sense of these being human beings. They're not just other. Um, yeah. It's just spectacle and it's fun and it's a, a carnival act kind mm -hmm. of thing. This is anything but that. Yeah. And, and yet it also comments on it. Clint Eastwood shooting the owner of the saloon because his his dear friend Ned Morgan Freeman is paraded in a pine box in front of the saloon with a sign that says this is what happens to assassins. Um, when Hackman protests and said you just shot an unarmed man, I think his line is, well, he should have been armed. Yeah, there's a beautiful, again, a beautiful cadence in the line. Well, he should have armed himself if he's going to decorate his saloon with my friend. Right. And brilliant the way Prince just names that line. And it's, but also it's really, really strange because you get a sense of friendship and loyalty, right? Yes. But then it, it, does Curly really deserve to be murdered? Well, at that moment, I went, yeah, shoot him. Yeah. So I, I implicate myself. But also, as you're saying, that the way, the way the people are, are, are shot, that, that sequence in the ravine when the, Ned... Clint and and Schofield Kid have their target in their sights. The guy bleeds out. He dies of bleeding to, as opposed to a gunshot. The gunshot doesn't kill him. He bleeds to death. And that's I hadn't seen that sort of thing happen in a western before, um, where it's, it's it's a slow, really painful, draining death, which yeah. allows encourages the audience to really contemplate it. You know, it, it yeah. just, to the point that Clint is trying to kill him as a mercy killing hmm. to finish. You know, so there's that there's that layer of layer of irony as well to it. Okay, well, to close out on this wonderful film, I wanted to propose to you some counterfactuals that could have occurred, just to right. get your impressions. So, in the early '80s, Francis Ford Coppola was in possession of this script, and suggested John Malkovich for the role of William Money. Speechless. <laughs> <laughs> and I love John Malkovich, but good God. Yeah, there's certain faces. I think we've mentioned this before. There are certain faces that are urban and there are certain faces that are rural. Now, I know he was in, um, I think John Malkovich was in Places in the Heart, a rural picture. But there are also there are certain faces that are modern 
and it's hard to see them in a different landscape. Now, I know he was also, he was delicious, just deliciously corrupt in Dangerous Liaisons. But there is, you know, Al Pacino, you don't believe that he could play a cowboy or, or somebody in the American Revolution, which he played disastrously in the, in the movie Revolution. Nicholson doesn't, I can never believe Nicholson as a guy on a, on, a, on a horse in the West. And Malkovich, I can't imagine either. Um, you know, and Coppola, Coppola was, everything he touched in the 70s turned to gold. You know, he did, he wrote Patton, he produced American Graffiti, Godfather 1 and 2 of the conversation, Apocalypse Now. Unfortunately, dreadful things happened to Coppola in the 80s. Um, and in a way that I'm glad that he didn't, he, I don't think he would have been the right director for it because Coppola goes for, either he goes for brilliant chamber pieces like The Conversation, or he goes for the, 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 the mammoth operatic epic. And operatic would, would have destroyed this picture. Yeah, it, no, it, it wouldn't work at all. And, and speaking of Al Pacino, Pacino beat Clint for best actor that year for Scent of a Woman. In your view as a film historian, is that one of the worst ever, like historically looking back, victories for an actor? I mean, I love Pacino as an actor, but that performance is awful. Is. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it doesn't work for me at all. Maybe somebody loves it, but um, I guess they're just repaying him for all of the other times they should have given him an Oscar. But I thought Clint's performance in this blew me away. Yeah, it was very good. Uh, I think off the top of my head that year, there was Stephen Ray also for The Crying Game. And oh, I think yeah. Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. was up for Chaplin. But, you know, I, I think I think what happened in that year is probably because I was too, so young. This is the first time I remember hearing it. I heard the heard the phrase. It's his time. Hmm. Right. Who decides that? Well, yeah. it's publicists, and by using that phrase, it's like a, a PR, um, PR's dream because I'm actually coercing you, I'm finessing, I'm massaging you into saying yes that Al Pacino, and it's almost like we are we are apologising because we should have given it to him for Godfather Part Two, which I think for me is his greatest. It's completely internalised. Um, people say Serpico, people say Dog Day Afternoon. I mean, he went on a magnificent run, but the Godfather Two for me was the was one, and you know. It, um, I think I mean, Alec Baldwin does a great does some really really good uh, impressions of Al Pacino, and he makes the point that Pacino, when he was younger, in his younger era, uh, days as an actor, his voice was very um, whiny and nasally. It was sort of the upper register, and then at some point it got very deep with all yeah. hoo ha. And yeah. all this, Alec Baldwin did it brilliantly, and you know, I think that the scent of a woman was that time when he was just doing he was getting over ripe but I, in his defense i think he was nominated the same year for glenn gary glenn ross he was great in that i, I that, yeah well I, yeah i mean i i agree i i totally agree with you about pacino and godfather too i think that is one of the great performances i've ever seen on film like it, i think the I only saw it recently. It's another one that's sort of inexplicable for me that I just, everybody watched it and adored it and I avoided it, which, which was the Sopranos. And right. I think, I think Gandolfini and that, I think that is the best performance I've ever seen by an actor. Now you could argue he had all those seasons to allow for the evolution and stuff, which a Pacino didn't, 
But I've, I mean, he must have a repository of a thousand facial expressions and micro expressions to yeah. respond to things or avoid responding to something. But you know, he's thinking about something else. In yeah, a way, yeah. I've ne I've just never seen that level of sophistication before. You're right. I mean, the brilliant thing was, I mean, okay, people say, as you said, he had so many seasons to flesh out the character. I think the the the, the writers had so many seasons to flesh out the character, but Gandolfini had to fill it out. Yeah, he had to yeah. be able to fill out the, our growing understanding of this guy, and he always had to be ahead of us. He always had to be further down the line in his understanding of who, who Tony was in order for us to be surprised or completely engaged still. And it would have been so easy for him to just switch off and go autopilot. Yeah. And, you know, the show did have problems along the way once in a while. But um, I think he, one of the reasons why he was so compelling, Brent, was because his greatest adversary was actually Edie Falco. Mm, very true. Carmela was... an. I wouldn't say equally compelling because the movie, the show wasn't really about her, but she was the one who could stand out in the most, just like uh, Dr. Melfi was the one who understood him the most. Right. Yeah. And this isn't, this isn't a criticism of, of Unforgiven at all, because I think that the way the women are fleshed out and presented, they're very articulate. They've got a sense of self. They've got a, a sense of justice and they have agency. Now I, I know that they hired these gun killers to come in, but they had agency enough to, to, to pool their money together. And I think that was the great line when Strawberry Alice says, they, she effectively says they can ride us, but we're not horses. And I think that was a fantastic um, uh, commentary on the misogyny of the Western genre. I mean, we jokingly referred to it last week when we were talking about High Noon and that moment where Grace Kelly actually picks up the gun and shoots one of the villains, one of one of Will Kane, or one of um, Miller's gang. And when I, I read during the week, though, when that was screened in 52, audiences leapt to their feet. Huh. She did it. She did it. You know, so I think this is the wonderful thing. One of the wonderful things about Unforgiven is that they um, they show how narrow uh, a, a woman's place was within the within the emerging West. And um, by keeping it narrow, somehow people didn't resort to stereotype. You know, there was there was no war with the heart of gold. To use right. the phrase, when 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 um, Delilah is offering herself to William Money, it's not because she's got a heart of gold. She's trying to reclaim her sense of what society deems to be beautiful mm. she's she's pleading with them almost she's subliminally she's pleading or the subtext is she's pleading with them please have sex with me so i can reclaim my sense of function right you know right. and it's so, so sad it, but so it's, sad. it's just a brilliant brilliant screenplay i mean if anyone teaches screenwriting or if anyone's a student of screenwriting study that script and keep studying it because the layers in it is yeah. just it's it's Superb, and I know we're gushing about the movie, but this is a movie worth gushing about. This is well, just, and we've had several films to just really slam for us not liking them. Um, and and lastly, I, I thought this would surprise you. Do you know of all people where who this is their absolute favorite film? I'll, I'll give you a clue. It's an athlete. It's a, a phenomenal athlete. I've no well. Phenomenal athlete would narrow it down to the really select few, but I've no idea who. Michael Jordan, 
this is this is Michael Jordan's obsessive rewatchable is one that he returns to again and again and again of this identification of Clint and the character of William Money. Does he say why? why well, he say? I think he I think the identification and I think also of the fight that happened last weekend between Roy Jones and, and Mike Tyson. Roy Jones actually quoted the film Tombstone before one of his most famous fights where somebody was egging him on and he said, I'll be your Huckleberry, Val Kilmer's most famous line from Tombstone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think this identification with being a, a gunslinger, being the top gunslinger, you do have one brief reference in this film to money being compared to William Bonney, Billy the Kid. Yes, yes, and some yes. of the other again mythological figures. I mean, Last Dance, the documentary that he participated in. Most of the journalists that I talked to, that have spent time with him, made a big point to say, "What's left is legacy," and you know he's being confronted by the legacies of Kobe Bryant and LeBron James and that kind of thing. This is his way to remind contemporary audiences, "Look here, like yeah. the ultimate." gun from the old west is me right yeah yeah that's that's really good that's really good yeah um yeah i mean to think didn't they do didn't they do two triples in the 90s yeah, yeah, yeah. six titles and and a retirement coming out of retirement a couple times yeah. so i think the old gun old gun slinger analogy is something that resonates very deeply for him and this competitive streak yeah. And, and I mean, what that documentary reveals about lamenting about being so driven and brutal to teammates and, you know, certainly anything but virtue driving him to be yeah. the kind of maniacal genius that he was. It was darkness. It was grievance. It was pain. Yeah. You know, it was, you know, fighting against his siblings to get his father's attention first and and thereafter, everybody that offered a slight, proving them wrong, driving them into the ground with his greatness, it never being yeah. enough. Yeah, that's it's 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 amazing you should mention that because in the week that Maradona died, um, looking at Maradona's um, ability as a player and his phenomenal um, will to, in 1986, he dragged a rather mediocre Argentina side. He dragged them single-handedly by the hair into that final and although he didn't score he made two of the goals and he scored one of the greatest goals ever on the way to it and his will his determination and his demand of himself physically is so demanding you can see that in you know the powerhouse athletes at the very very top i don't know the figures in baseball but looking at tennis roger federer nadal serena williams they just have um, and I mean this as a compliment, an inhuman, by which I mean the vast majority of us mere mortals can't understand it. The, the discipline to impose this incredible suffering upon themselves, to endure beyond, you know, and then also to inspire people around them to say, you know, I am the one. It's like Lord of the Rings stuff. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It really yeah. is incredible. And when looking at the personalities, um, as Scotty Pippen, was that the, the yeah. other part compared with the Bulls? And, and looking at those emergent, the emergence of those talents and, you know, the way they, some of them fall by the wayside and they're, they're galvanizing. It, it is, I, in a way now, I can start to begin to understand why he would venerate this film so much because it's the obsession, I think. Yeah. It's the drive that 
um, Clint takes a beating but gets back on the horse and rides into town and destroys everything in, in his sight which is what you know Jordan did so yeah. many times you know um, uh, yeah but if, if any of the listeners haven't seen Unforgiven <laughs> what are you waiting for yeah, it's fantastic. Well, we're going to jump back in time from this to 1966 for some more Clint and Sergio Leone with The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. But this was tremendous fun. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to No Happy Endings, which is produced by George Alarcone Swaby, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and is presented by The Ring. <laughs>